Klein here for TurfNet Renovation Report. And our guest today, a little different uh, genre. We uh, usually talk to superintendents and architects. This time we're going to talk to a very respected veteran writer based up in Canada, uh, Lauren Rubenstein. And I uh, want to thank our sponsors for this conversation, the Andersons, uh, Golf Preservations, and Capillary Bunkers. Lauren, I know uh, you've been, well, we've been, I have to say this, I guess, full disclosure, we've been friends for 42 years now. Right. We met at the uh, Canadian Open up in Montreal in 1980 when we were both caddying. And we've played a little golf in between. Our last golf was at Royal Dornick, a club we're both members at. And I wanted to start uh, the conversation with you because you have a particular affinity for Dornick. Tell us about, you know, you grew up in suburban Toronto and now you're uh, a big fan and uh, a lover of Lynx golf. What is there, what is the average golfer, what is the average golf superintendent going to find out about the game by indulging in uh, Lynx golf? Well, that's a question, of course. And uh, I think that it's, uh, for me anyway, Lynx golf is the best kind of golf because it offers so many different opportunities. It's really what I call proper golf. It's not just golf through the air. It's golf on the ground. It's golf where while you're concerned with turf conditions, of course, and I know the superintendents that you've been uh, writing about and, and speaking with and working with for so many years, obviously turf conditions are very important to them. But in the UK, turf conditions can mean brown, firm, uh, whatever the weather dictates, people there, golfers there, aren't so obsessed with uh, green, soft conditions and throwing the ball in the air. It's uh, the enjoyment of the game, the manifold, the multifaceted aspect of the game that must have first occurred to uh, first, um, you know, I must have first enjoyed that, first uh, kind of fell in love with that when I went to Scotland for the first time geez, almost 50, some 50 years or so ago now. And uh, I think that's still it. And uh, in my recent trip to Dornoch, although I've been there many, many times, uh, this was a two-week intensive stay. And uh, I just confirmed for myself how much I love that sort of golf. You know, to the degree, for example, that my first game back here in Toronto was at 6 o'clock one evening by myself with four clubs. And uh, I think I'm, I've always played with a limited set, at least as I've gotten older, so that I can walk. But I've never been between numbers. Maybe this will sound ridiculous, but I've never used a range finder. I just enjoy seeing the shot and hitting the shot that I feel and that I see in my mind's eye. And uh, over in the UK and at Dornock in particular for me, that opportunity presents itself on almost every shot. You know, it's a, such a difference in terms of the culture of the game. If you, you take a, a, a course like Royal Dornock, it's about 50 miles north of Inverness, I don't know, 150 miles, 200 miles north of Glasgow and Edinburgh. And, uh, it's like a fan. It, it, it's right in the town. First of all, you, you walk two blocks, make a left turn at the cemetery. There you are at the first tee. The clubhouse is basically a glorified bar. I'm not sure there's much of a changing room. There's a little bit of a changing room and you go play golf and there's all sorts of people out there. There's kids, there's uh, grannies with uh, uh, toddlers. Um, and it's, it's a community. 
you even see that at St. Andrews because you've got Granny Clark's wine and it's right in the middle of town. It's such a, you know, I think not even before you've even hit a shot, you realize this is a different game. The North American game has come to be, uh, you know, stripes and manicures and scent meter reads and pin sheets and uh, posting a score too. So it's, uh, it, it's, I think it's liberating to go out there to just realize it's a different game. It is entirely. I mean, the North American game, while it can have its charms and you and I like certain places in North America more than we do others, uh, in North America, golf is really a thing apart. It has to insinuate itself into the culture, force itself into the culture. In Scotland, Wales, Ireland, England, golf is a thing that is entirely a part of the culture. As you say, when you walk in St. Andrews or in Dornoff or in so many other towns, villages, burgs, whatever you call them, you hear golf being talked. I mean, I could spend a month in Toronto walking down the street and never hear a word about golf. But when I was first in Scotland, all those many years ago, I sat in a restaurant in Edinburgh. I still remember the name, Henderson's Salad Table. And uh, I was listening to young women uh, who had obviously just graduated from teacher's college, and they were trying to plan where they would get their first jobs in teaching. And what I heard was two young women basing their decision to some degree on what village, town, burg, as I say, had a golf course that they would enjoy the most. Now, I don't think I've ever heard that conversation in North America. So, you know, you don't feel that, um, that you have to even explain yourself as a golfer in any way, shape, or form over there. You walk down the street in Dornoff, you see people carrying their golf clubs, pulling, pushing their golf clubs up golf road to same in St. Andrews uh, and, and so many other places. And I think that's really just the part of it, a big part of it. And that's why I felt um, so connected to the game there, because the game itself and the golf courses are connected to the towns. It's like a, a hockey rink in Canada or a baseball diamond or a basketball court just a part of the of the way of life and uh, I, I really really felt that that was part of what appealed to me when I first went there and it only got stronger and stronger and stronger over the years. A lot of writers uh, went through that pilgrimage uh, to the old world. Herbert Warren Wynn most famously of course north to the links of Dornick. You wrote about it eloquently in a book that I advise uh, suggest to everyone A Season in Dornick by Lauren Rubenstein and um, and um, I guess the question is, uh, do, you, do you get a sense that some of that culture is changing in, the, in North America? I noticed, for example, maybe you can riff off of this. Uh, after COVID, people were walking more. They were taking push carts. A lot of clubs that would never have allowed a pull cart because it wasn't, you know, classy looking, relented. And um, I, I wonder if people are walking and enjoying that side of the game a little bit more recently. I think you're right. I think there's been an awakening to other aspects of the game besides playing by yardage uh, and so on and so forth and, and hitting the ball in the air. I think there's been an awakening to all of the virtual, the recreational aspect of it. Maybe the playing sometimes with a half a set, walking with your friends, playing in the evening alone, all of that. And you see in the U.S. and in Canada any golf courses or the majority of golf courses that I see being being built um, are shorter, are nine hole golf courses. And people are taking more and more 
nine hole golf, just going out and having some fun and batting the ball around, not so much the obsession with score. I hope that'll last. I hope it will persist. But, um, you know, I'm seeing that being talked about more and more by, by people and uh, people in the game who want to build, for example, um, construct putting greens like we see in Ireland or the Himalayas, Himalayas in, in St. Andrews. And uh, we're seeing a, as I, I use the word awakening, because I think that's what it is. I think people who open themselves up to those kinds of opportunities and playing possibilities, something happens to them. Something happens to them. They say, you know, so many people go to Scotland and they'll play in weather there. They'll never play in over here. Um, they'll play golf courses they wouldn't play in over here because they'll think they're in rough condition. They're not immaculate. They're not green. They're not soft. They can't. They're unpredictable. Uh, the ground is uneven, uneven, that sort of a thing. Now, British people aren't coming here to play our golf courses too much, except the people of means who have connections and they want to come over and play Augusta or Pine Valley or Cyprus or those. But, you know, you hear, I'm sure if somebody did a study, the percentage of uh, of golfers who go over to play golf in Britain uh, based, you know, relative to the population is much higher from North American golfers going over there than those golfers from over there coming over here. It's just so much gets under your skin. And uh, once people go, they can't wait to come back. And they learn that they don't have to play 12 courses in seven days. They can stay in one or two places and just play and get to know the culture and the people. And I'm seeing more and more of that as well. I'm struck. Uh, this conversation is taking place just before the 150th um, Open Championship at St. Andrews. There's a lot of attention and buildup and excitement. And I was struck by images that I, all of last week we, we saw um, Scotty Scheffler, Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth bundled up with about five layers playing, uh, I think, Bally Bunyan or Trolley. It was Trolley. And that was all over the, the Internet, social media and all that. And I thought it was fascinating to see here at tour pros, you know, they could play anywhere. Uh, just the other day, Max Homa, after he finished his second round at the Genesis Scottish Open, had a morning tea time on Friday, ran over to North Berwick with a pull cart, put his pro bag and played 18 holes, teeing off at five in the afternoon. So I think it's great to see that sort of, if you will, conversion or enthusiasm uh, among elite players, because it maybe it filters down in the lesson or the yeah, the lesson kind of gets through that this is fun. This is interesting. This is a battle. And then after they, they were drinking beers while they were on the golf course. Well, they're seeing the game just as fun as it was when they were kids. And it's appealing to something in them that maybe they didn't even know that they needed because they play such a conventional game over here on tour. And everybody gets excited about going to play the open every year. I mean, players who know what the game is all about. And even those who don't some players who've never been to Scotland before, now for the Scottish Open and uh, that uh, has been on at uh, at the Renaissance Club and then the Open at the Old Course. So, yeah, I mean, maybe it'll filter down. I hope so. Who knows? But it's certainly encouraging when you see the top tour pros get excited. Max Holm, as you say, pushing a cart along there at North Berwick. I mean, Tiger playing early in the morning, which he does all the time anyway. But this was the golf course. This was the tournament champion that he was always going to point to this year. You knew that back um, when he started, you know, at least being able to walk again and walk. You knew that from Augusta. Yeah, Augusta is very important to him. But, you know, when he, try, and he tried to play the PGA and had a withdrawal after three rounds, he wasn't going to play the U.S. Open because he just couldn't manage the walk. But he was always going to play at St. Andrews, barring 
being in, it being impossible to walk, but a flat golf course and the weather is very, very good, it looks like. So, of course, that's where if there was one course in the world that Tiger was going to play because he's won two opens there. This was the one. This was the one championship. And whether it's his last one or not, I think that tells you everything you need to know about the appeal of Lynx golf and the old course in particular, that Tiger was going there despite, you know, his obviously problematic leg and his real difficulty in walking. You've spent enough time, I'm sure, at Green Committee meetings and listening to talk at the 19th hole at clubs all over the uh, Canada and the United States. How realistic do you think it is, given the kind of dominant golf culture we have? You know, don't superintendents kind of put their careers on the line if they try to emulate a Lynx course on, on, the, on, a, on their property? Is there, is there a little bit of a danger there, or do you think it's, it, it's worth the risk? I mean, you must have had these conversations with. with yeah. Members because members of private golf clubs in particular are so demanding of what they consider pristine conditions, which they mean green and soft, that sort of a thing, where the ball doesn't bounce all over the place. And to be fair, I mean, the, the turf in North America is not like the turf in Britain, very rarely anyway. And um, the, the culture of the game, the history of the game has always lent itself or it's always created a situation where members think that um, what I call what you call the Augusta National Syndrome, when they see Augusta, they're just genuflecting to Augusta. They think that's how a golf course should be to some degree. And they demand not those kind of conditions because, you know, the wise member, how expensive it is to maintain courses like Augusta National. There isn't a course in North America, really, that can do that besides Augusta National. But I think, you know, as you say, it, it can be difficult for superintendents. It requires um, much better communication with members, but even more about what kind of conditions maybe make for more enjoyable and interesting golf. Um, but it's, uh, you know, we have hindrances, in, impediments to that. You know, the number one is players just think that the proper golf is golf through the air to an exact yardage. Yeah, maybe that's fine for tour pros, but most players can't do that. And they don't hit the ball out of the middle face every time they have a better time just using the ground where it's appropriate to use the ground you obviously can't use the ground if there's water right in front of a green or a tee or if the bunkers are really um, deep right in front of a green but you know there are ways to maneuver yourself around the golf course and play smart but the communicate I know you've heard about this quite a bit Brad the communication with members has to be spot on but Members have to want to listen as well to alternate points of view, and they have to be shown what the game can be like. And then it's up to kind of the committees at golf courses and to the superintendents and the members to have a kind of coming together, you might say. Hey, let's try this, you know. Brown isn't so bad. Firm and fast isn't so bad. As a matter of fact, it can be a lot more fun fun let's open up the game let's make it wide wide open in terms of its possibilities yeah you know it's, i mean part of it is structural it has to do with soil types uh sand drains well at dornick at pinehurst and some places it doesn't uh, clay doesn't drain really well so a lot of the inland courses might be, not be able to achieve those conditions but certainly golf courses can be made to run firm and fast uh, in uh, drier weather and like you say, opening up the golf course, you know, what's amazing is, and I'm sure you've seen this when, I, when you're dealing with renovation and you talk about taking some trees down and opening up the fairways, people are suddenly sort of up, up in arms that it's going to make the golf course too easy. Actually, what it does is make the golf course more diverse 
because the ball's going to go to different angles. It's going to run. It's actually going to favor the mid-high handicapper who's going to get, they hit a lower trajectory anyway. They're going to get more roll. So it, it, it's sort of an interesting, uh, what's the word, battle, if you will, or conversation. But I, I think more people like you who, who, who uh, sound the, uh, the cause, if you will, and um, beat the drum on behalf of Lynx Golf and, and then see it on TV and then experience it. You know? And actually, that's why places like Cabot, uh, Stream Song, uh, Sand Valley, and, and Bandon Dunes are busy. In North America, even you give people a chance to experience it, they love it. Yeah, Mike Kaiser knew exactly what he was doing, and Ben Cowan Dewar, with support from Mike Kaiser at Cabot and other courses around the world that he's developing, um, knows what he's doing as well. And uh, Mike Kaiser's inspiration was Royal Dornock, he saw what was going on there. He would often see the word remote attached to Royal Dornock. Uh, you know, it used to be a lot more remote when I first went there. It took seven hours to get there from Glasgow because none of those great sea firths were there. You had to go all around them. And I remember taking the bus up there and trains. Now, at least you can drive up there and, and it's four hours, but it's beautiful up there in the highlands. And, and Mike thought, you know what? People are coming to this place. Yeah, it's remote by our standards. And uh, he started building golf courses in, well, in Bandon. And as you said, you mentioned the other places in Cabot here in Canada is very, very popular. I have some friends who are out there right now. They drove out there from Toronto, which is a couple of days drive. And um, they're loving it up there. They're not even the most avid golfers, but they're seeing the virtues of the game on, on ground such as Cabot uh, Lynx and Cabot Cliffs tries to present. And uh, that's one of the reasons I think, um, you know, Mike, Mike Kaiser has been so successful with go golfers. They want to, it's almost like with music, you know, sometimes you don't know what kind of music you really like. Then you hear a piece of music and it appeals to you and you can't even explain it in words, but it appeals to something in you. Um, and uh, I think that happens with golf courses as well. It can happen anyway. I'm, I'm reading Mike Kaiser's new book. It's called, uh, the, I think, The Nature of the Game. Uh, and it's co-written with Steve Goodwin. And it's very well done as an explanation uh, about the virtues of Lynx Golf and how it shaped his uh, understanding of what was possible. And what he calls retail golfer has taken, that is the actual everyday fee-paying golfer. You know, so much of North American golf culture has been predicated upon an elite or a mythical elite player, you know, and they sort of dominate conversations and this is what conditions should be like. But 95% of golfers don't play anything like that. They don't, they have no idea how, you know, trajectory and landing spots and how long they hit a five iron, all that stuff. It's kind of, it's a very strange delusional sort of thing you deal with when you actually look at the difference between everyday golfers and how people talk about what a golfer ought to be like and, uh, maybe this is a healthy uh, corrective to that. But, you know, there's something in golfers that they can come alive to those sorts of possibilities. Um, when I went to Dornoch recently, as I was saying, uh, my daughter-in-law's father came with us and he had been to Scotland once. He'd never been to Dornoch. And he started seeing me with my limited set of clubs you know, chipping five irons, 120 yards, 150 yards, opening the face, trying to hit them up in the air. Now, I'm not the golfer I once was, but still I can hit those shots and I, I feel more stimulated by them. And he started out the trip by hitting conventional, you know, wedges from 110 yards, that sort of thing. By the end of the trip, he had fallen in love with his five iron mm -hmm. and he was all along the 
pound hitting all sorts of shots. And when you hit that ball out of the face of a five iron for 80 or 90 yards and run it up and down and over a hill and a hillock and through a hollow. And uh, as Alistair McKenzie once said, it's, it's a great thrill to wonder where is my ball going to end up? How is it going to take that hollow and hill? And you don't get that really through the air when you know your precise distances as better golfers do. So, um, you know, I mean, so my daughter-in-law's father, Will, is very excited about that type of golf now. And he lives in Quebec and we'll see if he can incorporate some of that. At least you can do some of it. It's not always possible, as I say, but it is, um, there is a chance if you have, you know, I was out there playing the other night at my club here in Toronto, as I say, when I first uh, went out with four clubs and I had about an 80 yard shot on one hole where I wasn't even carrying a sand wedge. I'd never carried a lob wedge. So I chipped the five iron along the ground. And although it wasn't firm, fast turf, ran all the way up there about eight feet from the hole. And I said, that's the kind of golf I want to play more often. That's the kind of golf that energizes me. I have to acknowledge that over the years I have um, become less interested in even playing the game as much as I once did because I don't want to just hit the ball through the, I want to hit the ball along the, want to use my imagination. And that's what I hope to, that's what I hope uh, to try to do more here in Canada and, and wherever I might be in North America. Well, people of our age, I dare say, have no business trying to hit a five iron 170 in the air. Anyway, those days are over. So uh, in fact, it strikes me listening to you because I have the same issues. Oh, I was never as good a golfer as you were. Um, it's uh, as we get older, there's a certain satisfaction in mastering that level of shot making because now you have a whole new skill set to develop instead of feeling like you're obsolete or you're going to just retire to the porch. Uh, you can play a golf course that's 5,500 yards, 5,800 yards and feel like you can still hit shots and, and make it exciting for yourself. So uh, yeah. As, as golfers get older, there, there's a whole new way to approach the game. One guy I once played golf with in England, I was set up to play with a fellow named Howard Singleton, who was the president in perpetuity of a club called uh, the Isle of Purbeck, kind of up on a cliff in, in, in England. Um, you know, nobody, you know, outside of the club in the area might have heard of that club. But I went out and played with him, and we were playing about a 320-yard hole. Uh, he was pushing his cart and he was in his 90s already, his mid 90s. And he chipped, he hit his driver down there about 110 yards. He hit his second shot down there about 110, 120 yards running it. And he had 70 or 80 yards to the pin. And if there was water in front of the green, he could not have played, could not have completed it because in his mid 90s, he couldn't hit a ball 90 yards in the air. So he hits, ran along the ground all the way up to the green and it went in a hole for a three. Now, 90% of golf courses in North America, you can't do that. That kept this gentleman in the game, kept him excited, and uh, he was able to enjoy the game well into his 90s. He's probably still enjoying it if he's still around. I'm sure he's, uh, he's over 100 now, but, you know, we've seen golfers like that, and that's what Lynx golf or even Heathland golf where the, turn, where, where the ground is firm and fast and not a lot of water. I mean, there's not one water hazard on Royal Dornoch. You've got the sea, of course, the Dornoch Firth, but it doesn't come into play. It's just there for you to enjoy visually. Uh, not one water hazard. Here, I mean, they think they should put water hazards on a golf course. I'm sure you've encountered it. Well, let's make our golf course a little tougher. We can't get more length, but let's put in a water hazard. That's ridiculous. 
my guest uh, is uh, the famed Canadian writer, golf writer, Lauren Rubenstein, Brad Klein here for TurfNet's renovation report. And want to thank our sponsors, the Andersons, Golf Preservations, and Capillary Bunkers. We'll be right back after this break. From fairway and greens drainage to full-scale renovation work, Golf Preservations can handle your project with ease and give you the peace of mind of knowing the professionals are caring for your valuable golf course assets. Since 2005, Golf Preservations has meticulously installed over 500 miles of drainage pipe on more than 300 golf courses nationwide, always keeping disruption of play to a minimum. Visit GolfPreservations.com or call 606 499 2732 to speak with us about your next drainage or renovation project. Introducing Genesis RX, a line of comprehensive fertility and soil amendment solutions specifically designed for airification, construction, renovation, sodding, sprigging, and seeding. These blends represent the most comprehensive fertilizers the Andersons have ever produced, offering single product solutions designed to simplify fertility and save time in application. To learn more, visit andersonsplantnutrient.com turf. The capillary bunker system keeps bunker moisture at optimal levels to eliminate washouts, soil contamination, plugged ball lies, and other bunker maintenance and playability problems. The patented capillary bunker system not only rapidly drains rain from storms, but also moves moisture back up to the bunker sand through capillary action as needed during drier weather. Capillary bunkers last longer, average a three-year payback, and provide better, more consistent player experiences all with a 10-year performance guarantee. For more information, visit capillarybunkers.com. Okay, we're back uh, with uh, Canadian golf writer, Lauren Rubenstein, Brad Klein here for TurfNet Renovation Report. And uh, again, I want to thank our sponsors for making this conversation possible. Uh, the Andersons, Jeff, uh, Golf Preservations, and Capillary Bunkers. Lauren, you've been writing... Uh, You've had a long, distinguished career uh, as a writer, uh, a very good player. You're in the Ontario Golf Hall of Fame, and you recently were uh, accorded an honor uh, with a lifetime membership at Dornick. Um, and uh, I was wondering what comments you made when you were there. I was on it, you know, it's been three years since you and I teed it up at Dornick. I have not been back because of COVID issues, but uh, not with me, but with the, the world. But um, that must have been quite a powerful experience for you to be honored as a Canadian in Scotland. Yeah, it was a wonderful and memorable evening, Brad. It was June 26th and uh, my wife Nell came over, as I say, my daughter-in-law's father came from Montreal. Um, we have four grandchildren uh, from two kids and two boys, two 13 and 10 years old came over so they were all there as well and of course that meant a tremendous amount to us that they were there and uh, um, you know I spoke that evening and then there was after the presentation and then there was a question and answer period but 
Yeah, I spoke quite a bit about what appealed to me, the kinds of things you and I have been talking about. And just a day or two before that, I had been doing my usual thing of sitting in a cafe there in Dornoth and doing some reading and thinking about maybe some of the remarks I was going to make. And I came across a comment by, um, by an artist uh, who, with the Scottish National Academy, had done some sort of exhibit called The Artist and the Mountain in 2018. And a line... Uh, from him really stuck out with me. He said that the invisible, something like the invisible must be made visible, or that when something true and authentic happens, the invisible is made visible. And I started my remarks by saying, you know, uh, it's very difficult to, even if we're writers or artists or whatever, to say to say or depict expressly what we like about something. We can get at it. We can talk at Dornoch, for example, about the views from the clubhouse, which you know so well, and the sea out there. We can talk about the golfers going off the first tee and hitting the ball along the ground. We can talk about golfers coming up 18 and then coming into the bar to have a beer. I mean, we can talk about the fresh air. We can talk about so much about the landscape of Dornoth and the fact that Donald Ross was born there. But it's there's something even more than that. I mean, what was it about Dornoth that appealed to me? Uh, I love all Lynx golf courses, really, but something about Dornoch made me want to spend a lot of time there over the years. So I spoke about that quite a bit and how the best golf courses, at least to me, make the invisible visible. And I couldn't put it into words, but that's what Dornoch does for me. Uh, and, you know, I can give you an example of, uh, you know, my grandson, who, as I say, are 10 and 13, two of the three, the other one couldn't come. He's a New Yorker and wasn't able to come on this trip. But anyway, uh, we would have dinner and we'd finish dinner at 8.30, 9 o'clock, 9.30. And with the long summer light in Dorna, they would just say to me, let's go to the golf course. So we walked the two minutes up to the golf course and we were putting there till 11 o'clock at night, till night fell. And already they're talking, they were there for three days. They loved Scott. They loved the Highlands, uh, and uh, so did uh, the whole family who hadn't, the part of the family hadn't been there before. They just really appreciated everything about it. And uh, along these lines, there's a, a Canadian senior player, Judith Carinas, who played in the recent British Women's Senior Amateur, which was run concurrently with the British Men's Senior Amateur at Royal Dornoff the week after I was there. She finished 11th. She won the 2017 U.S. Women's Senior Women's Championship. Anyway, she went over to Dornoch for the first time. She finished 11th, as I say. And I got a text from her just this morning, the morning we are speaking. Uh, it was actually a tweet that, that she tagged me in. And she said, beautiful morning here in Dornoch. No wind. I walked along the beach. I can see why you love this place so much, Lauren. And she's right. You know, it's 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 uh, it's gotten to her as well as it gets to so many people, international people who come to Dornoch. And uh, that's that was really the gist of my remarks about uh, about why I feel strongly about Dornoch. And already I'm contemplating my next visit. You know, it's amazing. I've always thought that golf courses generally are some of the most beautiful places in the world. Early in the morning late in the afternoon at night. Superintendents know this because they spend a lot of time out there when no one else is around. And as you're speaking, I was I'm flashing back to uh, when my wife and I got married, we took our honeymoon delayed 
1987, we stayed at, uh, it was a kind of a rundown hotel. It's not there. I guess it's still there. Rundown hotel overlooking the golf course. And we went out at 1130, maybe midnight, probably about 11 o'clock actually at night. It was still just a touch of light. You know how that is out there. And this was back when they were still being overrun by rabbits. And we walked the fairways as it, and we could, we could feel the whole place in motion uh, with the rabbits everywhere. And with enough of the wind and you know, the light out on the coast. And I, there is a, I, not every golf course has that, but I'm actually convinced that every golf course has a, has a magical place where you can go and sit and feel special. I often will ask superintendents, uh, where do you go when you need to get away? And, and we'll, we'll get in the cart and ride out there in the middle of, you know, off somewhere at an angle or something. And there is something about the golf course as a, as a retreat embedded in nature, forget about all that other stuff, the game technology, you know, performance launch monitors, anything like that. It's just, it's the most beautiful sports field, the most beautiful piece of engagement and, 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 so few, so little do we have an opportunity to, to engage and indulge and experience that in the world these days. And uh, I think it's great that you captured that. It, it, you can't f- explain it completely in words or in images even. That's why the invisible becoming visible is kind of a helpful feeling or sensibility there. You know, three or four years ago when I was in Dornock, it might have been the trip that I was with you, I think so, because my friend uh, Jerome Lyon, Toronto was yeah, he was there. Yeah, most avid golfer. He plays once a week at a public golf. Toronto, but enjoys the game once a week. And we went up to Rural one day. We went up there not to play, but just to walk. Of course, and I wrote an article about sort of golfing without golf clubs. You might say yeah, um, that's a good way to put it. Walking into the pro shop and saying to the uh, the woman there, you know, we, we've I played here before. We don't want to play this time. We would just like to walk the golf course. Would that be okay? And she said, absolutely, go right ahead, go out there and walk there. And I think, you know, I don't want to, um, you know, really make this a, a podcast about, about grandchildren, but you've got, I think, you know, some yourself. And uh, to see those two boys, how much they took to Dorna. And now I want to get my grandson and granddaughter from New York there, and I'll, that'll be a foursome, and I'll just caddy for them. Because even though they haven't been that exposed to the game over the years, they don't live here in Toronto, or at least until recently, uh, only uh, they lived elsewhere. Uh, there's something about the game, as you say, just the physical landscape that appeals to people. It's, uh, it's, it's more than a park, and it's more than a golf course, and it can really get under your skin, and it can be there for all of your life choose for it to be. Well, you know, one of the important differences is because of uh, the law of, of uh, open land. Those are public lands. The links, by definition, even uh, at St. Andrews, everywhere, they're owned by the public. Uh, citizens have a right to access to them, to the coast. Uh, you know, every golf course, Crail has that famous trail. Uh, it's kind of dangerous, actually, along the holes. But it just occurred to me, most American clubs, if you ask to, to go for a walk, I'm sorry, sir, we don't, insurance policy doesn't allow it. You'll have to pay a green fee. Uh, you know, you, they, they wouldn't let you. Whereas over there, it's like, well, you know, where's your dog? Uh, you yeah, know, it's common, I think it's called common good lands and the land is available just to walk on and wander yeah. on. 
fun. And you see that in Doranok all the time. I mean, people out there walking their dogs, they're not playing golf. They respect the golfers. You respect them. Go ahead, cross the fairway. I'll wait till you cross the fairway. Come up, you know, cross the uh, the other side of the course, the links of the town. Yeah, it's just part. That's what we meant when we started this discussion about it just being a, a thing that is connected to the town. It's just part of the life there. It's not a thing apart. It's not behind walls. Yeah, well, you know, my hope is that the word gets out more and more. Uh, and, and what's very interesting is that this approach to the game is people think it's like old fashioned going back. Why would I want to play a golf course that's in lousy shape? But the, the superintendents, I have to say this, who are most attuned to this sort of way of doing things are the most technically sophisticated who know how to dry out a golf course, who know how to cultivate, you know, deep roots within frequent watering, for example. And they know that that's actually healthier turf and a, and a better game. So it's, it's by, it's not at all some sort of fuddy duddy old fashioned creaky, you know, sitting on a, a rocking chair with your grandfather this is actually where the game is going. And environmentally, it makes so much more sense because as you well can well imagine, the, you know, it, it's just the emphasis is not there out at, at, uh, at Lynx courses on fertilizer and, and pesticides and, and all that kind of management. It's a much naturalistic approach. Yeah. Thirsty. I mean, I think that helps. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. It'll grow. It's healthy. And, uh, you know, it's and mean that's what you want really and uh that brings in the element of chance and, and i agree that superintendents who know that they are really skilled at what they do and the ability to keep a golf course and yet playable and healthy is really an art and a science you know and it's uh, takes a lot more skill than just pouring water on a golf course and unfortunately so far anyway members demand greenery they don't like to see all the contrasting colors but as you say more and more uh, I think that, uh, that golfers are starting to see the virtues of that. Well, Lauren, it's always a pleasure to uh, talk with you and to uh, think about all you've written. The, uh, and I, I certainly recommend uh, A Season in Dornick. I hope that's still available uh, to the U.S. market um, in paperback. It's a lovely account of uh, basically three, four months hanging out, playing golf in Dornick, right? Right. Spent the summer of 2000 there, and uh, now I keep going back. Can't get enough. Well, um, let's hope that we get to go play golf again. Uh, just for, so the public knows, Lauren and I, whenever we play golf, have a standing bet. Uh, uh, we play a match, and uh, whoever uh, wins, the other person has to buy them a book at a local bookstore. So. Um, we've been frequent guests and um, I have to say, Lauren, I think I've filled up your shelves a lot more than you filled up mine in terms of winning matches. So, uh, but pleasure playing golf with you late and I look forward to the next. Oh, great. Lauren Rubenstein. Thank you very much. And uh, on behalf of uh, TurfNet renovation report, I want to thank our sponsors, the Andersons golf preservations and capillary bunkers. Until next time, thank you very much.